0: Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So obviously this is not mass like normal on Sundays. Father Ben is traveling and we'll keep him in our prayers this morning for his and his family's safety. Today, since we uh, didn't hear the Epistle and Gospel appointed for the Sunday and the Mass, um, but just our office readings, instead of uh, reading the Gospel and preaching on that, I thought that those of us who are here today uh, could have the chance to um, hear about sort of what we do in church, or what we um, ought to do, or what, what's traditional to do in church since so many of us didn't grow up in this tradition. Um, I didn't grow up in an Anglican or a Catholic or an Orthodox church. I had very little liturgical understanding of worship um, until college age, and, and then that that process was a lot of me going out on my own to learn stuff. So I wasn't trained. I wasn't brought up or taught or shown how to do these things. And, um, and so to this day, it's still, when, when I... Uh, visit a church that is multi-generational and has been around for decades, and you've got people, you know, in their older years who have been doing this their whole lives, and children who have been seeing those grown-ups do it their whole lives and are imitating it, and you just see this whole culture of worship at work, and we haven't had that benefit in this parish, and so I know that can be... um, that could be something that that sets us apart isolates us a little from from the broader tradition of which we are now a part so I wanted to just take today to go through some of the things that uh, it means to worship in a church like this and as I go since we're so small today, if anybody has thoughts or questions or wants clarification about something just say so and we'll just talk about it instead of you know this being kind of a formal sermon. Um, So this is a a different opportunity to to get to talk this through as we go. So, what we are doing uh, on Sundays when we come, or at Mass on a feast day, uh, if we have Mass in the night, is, um, is, is not just coming to observe something, it's coming to participate in something. And our participation as worshipers begins at home, When we wake up in the morning and think to ourselves, today is Sunday, our participation in worship begins with our first intention in the morning to come to church. And uh, the, the way that we begin participating through that intention is to prepare our minds and hearts and bodies for church. So the way we obviously start preparing our minds and hearts is through prayer. Wake up in the morning or before coming to Mass on a feast day and begin praying. Just pray. Acknowledge to God, I'm, I'm going to come and meet you and worship you in your house. And just begin that meeting with God on your way to church. The way we prepare our bodies um, on Sundays and feast days is that we fast, actually. Um, before we receive communion at church, we prepare our bodies by making room for Jesus, literally, both in our hearts and in our stomachs. So we, 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 there, there's a fast before um, Mass. And on Sundays, traditionally, we begin fasting at midnight the night before. So we just don't eat anything uh, too late at night, and we don't eat anything in the mornings. And we're, we're doing that so that we um, make room for Christ within us. So that's how we begin. When we get to this building... We acknowledge that this is a sacred space that's set apart from the world. So the world is a big place, and there's a lot going on in it. But this place is distinct from the world. It's not like, uh, it's not a meeting hall. It's not just a place to get together and hang out. This is a sacred, that means set apart space. It's what sacred or holy means, just set apart. And so when we, when we come to this building, what we do first is enter into that front door and we pass through what's called the narthex or the porch or portico. Um, and that's kind of a, it's like a middling place. It's like the, the boundary area between the world and where we are now, which is called the nave. And so this this is set up after kind of the, the Jewish temple, which God instructed the Hebrews to build. And he, let the, first, it was a tabernacle, and then the temple, and he gave them instructions to make different regions of progressive sacredness or holiness. So the first region that set this temple or tabernacle apart from the world would be uh, where Gentiles or non, non-Hebrew people would come if they were God-fearers. This is as far as they could go. And then beyond that, the covenant people of God could go farther. Beyond that, there was a place that only the priests could go. And then beyond that, there was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place of the whole temple where only the high priest could go and only once a year for one sacrifice. And so that pattern of progressive holiness is copied here in this temple. And we call it a temple because that's what it is. This is the temple of God. There used to be one. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, and we read in the Gospels that there was a big earthquake, and the veil of the temple was torn in two, I grew up thinking that meant that there was no more temple, that the temple was done with, and that God's presence was just everywhere, you know? God's not hidden in a a holy of holies. He's everywhere in the world. But that's not what that signifies, what that means is that that one temple is no longer the only temple. It means that, yes, God has gone out into all the world, but that temple can now be placed in different locales. There's not the one temple. There is There are temples all over the world. So it's not that God did away with the temple. It's that he made it to where we can have ours here in Atlanta, Georgia, when we come and meet together. So this is... The temple with the same degree of holiness and sacredness is that Hebrew temple for all those times, and even more sacred and holy because of the sacramental presence of Christ. So, just a note there. The veil torn in two does not mean the temple is done away with. It means that when you come here on Sunday mornings, this is the temple. So, you go through that progressive thing, the narthex, where the, the world is the boundary, and where Gentiles, that is people who aren't in the church, this is where all the introductory rites take place. Baptism, uh, making a catechumen, chrismation, all that happens at the narthex. And then once the people have been made fully members of the church, they are brought into the nave. And this is called the nave, where everyone's sitting. It comes from the Latin word navis, meaning ship or boat. And it's like the ark that we all journey in together. Because when we're here, we are the assembled church, and our journey is communal. We're not a bunch of individuals sitting here. We are the assembled body of Christ. And so this ark gathers us together from out of the world and assembles us. That's what the church means, the ecclesia. It means eke, out of. Uh, Laos, uh, the, the, the people are gathered together out of the world. And so that's what this, the nave, this ark, means for us. So when you come into the nave, what do you do? Uh, during COVID, this hasn't been an option, but hopefully um, we'll we'll begin doing this again. Holy water is usually at the very entrance of the nave. When you come in, dip your finger in it and make the sign of the cross on yourself. This is a reminder of our baptism. It's a, uh, a cleansing uh, with Water that has been blessed and set apart for the purpose of, of washing us. It's a, it's a powerful sacramental. Um, things that are blessed for the use of the people, physical things like incense that we offer, water that we put on ourselves. These are sacramentals. These are physical things that are now not like normal. If you don't bless incense and burn it, it's different than burning blessed incense. If you just make the sign of the cross with regular water, that's different than using holy water. The prayers of the church over these things are efficacious. They do stuff to stuff. Stuff God makes and stuff God can um, elevate to sacred purposes. So walk in. Take holy water. Next, we're surrounded when we walk in by images of saints. Venerate them. Don't ignore them. They're not just pretty pictures. They are portals of presence. Trademark. I came up with that, I think. I've never heard anyone else use that, but I like it. I think it's a good way to describe what these images are. Portals of Presence. When I stand in front of the icon of Alban and I ask him to pray for me and my family and for this church, I am not addressing a flat picture on a wall. I'm addressing St. Alban. When um, I credit his prayers for blessings in this church, and I want to thank him And I want to kiss his feet. I'm able to do that because he is there. Um, And the church for centuries has affirmed this. This has been challenged time and time again. There was a, a big time where it seemed like it could be overthrown in the practice of the church. But thank God the godly leaders, bishops of the church got together and reaffirmed it strongly. And we celebrate this um, in, in the commemoration of the Sunday of Orthodoxy, the commemoration of the Seventh Ecumenical Council where the church affirmed, yes, when we make images of Christ and his saints, they are really present to us, really present to us, not just necessarily when we're treating them that way, like they're pictures until we walk up to them and start praying and, and then the saint like shows up or something. Sometimes the saints attach themselves and and bless these images, and and miraculous things can happen with them. So we treat these images as the saints themselves. That goes for the the icons, it goes for the statues. That's how we treat these saints, and the church has affirmed it, and miracles uh, confirm it uh, throughout the, the history of the church. So walk into the nave and acknowledge that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, the next thing that we do is we come and have a seat, we get ready. When we do that, usually walking down the center aisle, it's traditional to come in, and before you go into the the pew, genuflect before the tabernacle, in which is kept the reserved sacrament, that is the the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament of the altar, we we keep it reserved there uh, to commune the sick, Um, also for veneration and that little red light burning back there is called the sanctuary lamp that indicates that Christ is present in the tabernacle so before just coming and sitting down genuflect kneel down this is something that in you know old since time immemorial people have done to show reverence to those who uh, are above them especially royalty this is Christ our king so we genuflect Sometimes I genuflect right when I come in the nave because I'm not coming and sitting down. So either right when you come in or before taking a seat, go down on one knee and acknowledge Christ in the tabernacle. Okay, so the next thing we want to do is make sure that we have the books that we need because, again, we aren't just observing, we're participating. So this is obviously the service book for the Mass, this is the book for the office, Morning and uh, Evening Prayer. And a lot of us don't always make morning and evening prayer, or few of us, fewer of us make it than uh, make the Mass. So it's a good thing to just run through this real fast because that's what we're doing today, morning prayer. Um, morning prayer and evening prayer come from the, the hours that the Hebrews kept in the temple. There was a morning and an evening sacrifice. And so traditionally, The morning and evening prayer times have been um, important in the church, but the church has also kept a lot of uh, several more hours of prayer, seven during the day and then one in the middle of the night, midnight. Altogether, these are eight hours of prayer that like holy monastics, monks and and nuns still keep to this day. They do this eight hours of prayer every day. Um, In the West, the names of these are called matins. That's the one in the middle of the night. Lauds at sunrise prime at the first hour, um, terse at the third hour, sext at the sixth hour, None at the ninth hour, then we have vespers, which is the evening prayer, and then Compline, which is prayer right before bed. So, if you can keep all of those prayers, we have the books, and uh, there's a learning curve, I'm not going to lie, but that's awesome. But very few people can keep those. Even monastics uh, struggle with it, sometimes they combine services and whatever. So in the church, um, in, for congregational use, what we've done is combined um, the midnight and the early morning prayer into one, matins and lauds, and we call this morning prayer. Uh, same thing for evening prayer, that's a combination of vespers and compline put together. So, in morning prayer, uh, this is for the purpose of glorifying God, uh, to give thanks to God, make petitions and to pray using the psalms. If you haven't noticed, psalms are a big part of morning and evening prayer, uh, even the mass, but primarily in, in the daily office. The psalms are the prayer book of the church, and they have been used as the primary way of um, joining ourselves to the prayer of the entire church and learning how to pray. The psalms are so full of magnificent lessons of, of how to pray, so that's why we uh, make them the central uh, central parts of, of these services, morning and evening prayer. So how do we participate in them? Well, the basics are this. Participate by singing. Whatever is there to be sung, sing it. Responding. The, the priest and the people have this dialogue that goes back and forth at different parts. So respond. Say the words that are the, the people's words. And then Pray. Pray the Lord's Prayer out loud. Sing it. Chant it. Pray the creed. Pray along with all the the prayers that even the priest alone is saying. Make them your own prayers. And make them your prayers by responding Amen, which is a Hebrew word, which means so be it. Let it be done this way. Amen. That's what that means. So those are the the basics. Um, But just some further specifics, because not all these things are written down. Some of them are traditionally just done. When you see, like on page one, this little cross, O Lord, open thou our lips. Usually that means to make the sign of the cross on yourself. In this case, what it actually means is to make a small sign of the cross on your lips. Lord, open thou our lips. That's what that cross means. Then, O God, make speed to save us. That's when we do the full cross. Then, this happens all throughout morning and evening prayer. It happens in the mass. When the priest says, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, we bow. We bow toward the altar in reverence of the Holy Trinity. Anytime the Trinity is named in Western tradition, we bow. In the East, they tend to make the sign of the cross. In the West, we tend to bow at the um, name of the Trinity. So, going on. We begin with the first song that we sing is the Venite. And there's one line in this. Uh, on the top, At the top of page three, O come, let us worship and fall down and kneel before the Lord our maker. When we sing that, traditionally we go down on one knee for that verse, because we're saying literally, let us worship and fall down and kneel. So we do it. So now you know that's that's what's going on there. At the end of it is the doxology again, the conclusion, glory be to the Father, to the Son, so we, we continue to bow. Um. At the name of Jesus in the Collects at the very end, when um, the priest is praying the various Collects, the names of these short prayers O God, who art the author of peace, the lover of concord, and knowledge of whom sin is the eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom, defend us, thy humble servants, in all assaults of our enemies, that we, surely trusting in thy defense, may not fear the power of any adversaries through the might of Jesus Christ our Lord. Sometimes it has a longer ending, who with thee and the Holy Ghost live and reign forever and ever. These are called colics. They're special uh, prayers that have the same basic format. And they're named this because either they they used to literally collect, they were praying when people would collect at stations and then collectively go to the church. um, Or they're named this because they collect the prayers and intentions of the whole people into one prayer that the priest offers. And then everyone says, amen. When, at the end of these, though, in the little doxology, when we say, through Jesus Christ our Lord, while we're praying, we tend to turn to make a slight bow toward the altar in reverence of Jesus, who is there on the altar. Um, In morning and evening prayer, when the priest is here and offers incense, what he does is senses the altar, but he also senses the people. This happens at the Benedictus in morning prayer. It happens at the um, Magnificat evening prayer, and during the Mass, it happens at the Offertory. So, when incense is offered at the altar, and then he turns and senses the people, what he's doing is marking us out as holy, and He, the priest, or the server, whoever is doing it, bows to the people first in senses. When that happens, we bow back in return because we not only venerate the saints, we venerate each other as living members of the body of Christ. Christ is in all of us. C.S. Lewis once said, besides the holy sacrament of the altar, the holiest thing ever presented to your senses is your neighbor because we are all made in the image of God. And so that's why we bow to each other, especially at the sensing, uh, the offering of incense, when we mark out the the altar, the icons, but also us, the people, as holy. Um, And then finally, here we only ever see this in evening prayer, because almost always morning prayer is followed immediately by the mass. But when the office is offered on its own, like it will be today, we end the office with the final antiphon to Mary. We sing an antiphon um, acknowledging the holiness of the Mother of God as the uh, highest example of humanity transformed by Christ. And so when we do this and sing this antiphon, we actually turn to her portal of presence, to her statue here. We're singing to Mary, so we turn and literally sing to Mary. And then at the end of this ambiphon, we say, let us pray. We turn back to the altar to God. All right, we don't confuse Mary with God. We never do that. We address Mary when we're addressing her. When we address God, we turn back to the altar and pray to God. So those are some little tidbits that you may or may not have noticed that we do. But traditionally, that is what is done. So if you want to increase the level and depth of your participation, Keep those things in mind and, and try to remember them and, and, uh, and do them does all that make sense questions thoughts about any of that so that is um that's that's the mass and then on sundays typically i mean the, the morning prayer then we move to the mass the mass is the highest um liturgy in the church uh, the church has many ways that we can pray together. We we call things like the rosary or the stations of the cross uh, devotions. We have things like blessings for the sick. Um, we, we do all kinds of stuff where we come together to pray, but the church assembled in prayer is what we call a liturgy. And the church only acknowledges the liturgy as being the canonical hours, those hours that I just said and the Mass. These are the liturgies. So morning prayer and the Mass. These are our liturgies, and the Mass is the most important one because it's where we literally commune with Christ physically in the sacrament of the altar. So this requires some preparation for us. On page one of this service book, we have preparations. These are meant for personal preparation. This isn't liturgical. No one else is praying this except You and this is for you to prepare your heart to um, to make sure that you are a good, well-working member of the body of Christ. Don't worry about how the body of Christ functions. Worry about how you, as a member of it, function. Um, You're in control of your own ship, and so you're the one responsible for making sure it's working well. This is one of the ways that we can do it. In this, we. First, acknowledge our sins and we uh, confess and ask for forgiveness. Uh, we do this because St. Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, But let someone examine himself and then let him eat that bread and drink of that cup. For whoever eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks condemnation on himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So, we want to be worthy, as worthy as possible, anyway, in confessing our sins first. Then, after confessing, we also acknowledge that we are here participating in this and offering with the priest the sacrifice for certain intentions. For example, the greater glory of God, in uh, thanksgiving of Christ's sacrifice, and thanksgiving for all of our blessings, um, in order to ask for help for something. Uh, in order to intercede for family or friends, and in honor of and remembrance of and for the help of the departed. So these things are, are ways that we can um, intentionally offer the sacrifice of the Mass. So the thing that happens right after morning prayer and also helps us to prepare is the Aspergius, when the priest sprinkles us with holy water. we read, We heard about this in... Psalm 51 this morning in morning prayer when we were chanting, um, Thou shalt purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, Thou shalt wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What is hyssop? Hyssop was a, a, a plant, a very stocky plant that the Hebrews would um, use to sprinkle things. They would dip it in the blood of sacrifices and sprinkle the altar and the uh, inside of the uh, thing. They would also sprinkle. Um, blood on the people on the day of Yom Kippur. They would also um, sprinkle water and and various things, and so this was a way of literally putting holiness on something, and we do this with holy water. The priest sprinkles us with holy water, again, a double whammy, um, remembering our baptism and as a cleansing, because this is holy water. So it helps to cleanse and prepare us and wash us and make us pure, as the psalm says because that's the antiphon, the psalm, that we quote in that Aspergius. Um, Traditionally, when we are sprinkled with the holy water, we also make the sign of the cross on ourselves. So the priest comes by, you get hit in the face with some water, make the sign of the cross. The next thing that happens is we are singing a hymn while the priest and ministers come down and they say the preparatory prayers at the foot of the altar. This is for their own preparation because as the ministers, as the clergy, They bear the greater burden in coming before the presence of God. So they have special prayers that they pray together in preparation. Uh, They're printed in our book. They're great for anyone to pray. So if you ever want to pray along with it, go for it. Um, But the more voices singing hymns together, the better, I think. You have to have a good, strong uh, congregational hymn singing. Then we come to the Mass itself. So the Mass itself begins with the introit on page 5. The introit is the entrance chant. That's when the priest ascends to the altar, um, senses it with incense. What's being sung there is the entrance chant. This is called a proper. It's a variable part that changes from Sunday to Sunday or feast day to feast day. So listen to it. If you've picked up a um, bulletin, all of the propers, all of the special chants of the day are printed in there, and they have a unity. They, They work together, and they help to... Uh, convey the special theme of that particular mass. So pay attention to the prophets. The Kyrie is the first thing that we all sing together. And again, this is our continued petition. We're coming to Christ and asking for mercy. Kyrie eleison, Greek, for Lord have mercy. Christ eleison, Christ have mercy. Then the Gloria, if it's appointed, is the hymn that we sing next. It's an ancient hymn. It became part of morning prayer in the East and the West in the 4th century, which means it was probably written in the 2nd or 3rd. That's how old this is. And it's based on the song that the angels sing at um, Christ's birth. Glory be to uh, God in the highest, and on earth peace goodwill be for men. And so uh, eventually this moved from morning prayer to the mass in the West. In the East, it's still in the office, the morning prayer. So this is something that we've seen together outside of penitential seasons. Um, At the last phrase, as all three of the persons are named, um, glory be to thee, O Christ, with the Holy Ghost, our Most High, and the glory of God the Father, we bow and make the sign of the cross. Again, to uh, acknowledge the Holy Trinity. Then we remain standing, um, because standing is the default position, posture for prayer. When you come in, and you don't know what to do stand sit whatever the default is always we are standing because that's the the posture of uh honor and prayer that has been around in the church forever in the east they actually have rules canons that say you're not allowed to kneel on sundays at all the west because they're that's in eastern uh culture kneeling is purely penitential in western culture it can be penitential, but it's also reverential. So we do a lot of kneeling on Sundays, not for penitence, but for reverence. So, But standing is still the, the default posture. So we stand. We're standing for all the prayers the call us, that the priest prays. But then we sit at the epistle. And this is because sitting is the posture for attentiveness, for concentration, for learning. Um, if you want a good uh, general guide, Whenever the clergy are wearing these, it's probably time for you to sit. Because uh, this is actually an academic cap. This is a cap that indicates learning. Um, it's why we wear them when we're preaching. It's why we wear them when we're sitting during the psalms. So we stand at the beginning of psalms and uh, bow, stand and bow at the end of psalms with the doxology. But in the middle, for all the other verses, we sit and we wear this because we are concentrating. The the Psalms recitation are, uh, it's prayer, yes, but it's also teaching us how to pray. And so we, we sit during recitation of Psalms. We also sit at the epistle because God's teaching us through the letters of Paul or Peter or James. And so we sit. Immediately after the epistle though, we stand up again for the gradual chant. And then then there's the Alleluia, the gospel comes out. And at the gospel, this is the reason the gospel comes out. It's because at the reading of the gospel in mass, there is a special sacramental presence of Christ that happens when his gospel is proclaimed. And we stand in acknowledgement of that. And when the deacon or priest in our case begins it by saying, the holy gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we respond and say, glory be to thee, O the Lord. We're addressing Christ directly. We're not saying thanks be to God. We're saying glory be to thee. We're acknowledging that you're here with us, in our midst now. We're addressing Christ. Glory be to thee. And at the same time, when, when he's saying the Holy Gospel according to, we make three small crosses. You'll see him do this, or me, on our head, our mouth, and our heart. And we say when we do this, may the Gospel be always in my mind, on my lips, and in my heart. That's what that is. We do it at the Gospel reading in the Mass, and we do it at the last Gospel at the very end. Then at the end, we say, praise be to thee, O Christ. Again, we're addressing Christ in this moment. Then at the homily, again, we sit, because it's the posture of paying attention and learning and attentiveness. Um, Homilies are more than just a, a, a speech or a presentation or whatever. Homilies are a part of the liturgical action of the church and this goes all the way back to Moses um, who receives the law, gives it to the people but then explains to them what it means, how it works. Um, Later when Josiah the king rediscovered the law in the temple after generations of misuse, same thing gathered the people together, they were assembled the law was read and presumably explained to them again. The Levites continued doing this through centuries. When the Jews ended up in exile in Babylon, the synagogue developed where they read their scriptures and sat and listened to the explanation of what the scriptures meant. And the church, the Christian church, continued this on. And so in this part of the mass, we're actually keeping that synagogue structure, uh, reading the scriptures and then sitting and having them expounded. This is very synagogue ish. The church kept this because the early Christians were Jews who, you know, were, they worshiped at the synagogues. Then after the homily, we all stand again, back to standard posture. And we pray the creed. I believe in one God is intoned by the priest. That's, all, that's always how it happens. The priest begins it, and then we all join in. Uh, during the creed, at the words came down from heaven, We're talking about Christ. We kneel in acknowledgement of the incarnation. Um, At the words, worship and glorified. um, Let's see, where is that? Yes. Proceeded from the the Holy Ghost, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, we bow. Again, Trinitarian acknowledgement. And at the very end, uh, when we say the resurrection of the dead, we make the sign of the cross on ourselves. This is another habit of the West. We tend to cross ourselves when we mention death or resurrection, because these are these are the biggest deals of our life, right? So when we mention the dead or we mention death, we make the sign of the cross. Um, okay, after the creed comes the offertory. It looks to us from out here like there's a lot going on up here that we're not a part of, but that's not true. What's happening up here is the gifts of bread and wine are being prepared, prayers are being prayed over them, we're acknowledging all of our gifts to God, and what we're saying is, in these gifts, bread and wine, this is a representation of a gathering up uh, in a, a symbolic offering of all that we have. Um, we give a lot of churches, we don't do this here, but a lot of churches will, will take up a tithe offering at this point, and also put the offering on the altar during the offertory. But the point is, in the bread and the wine, this is our offering. This is, we're saying everything that you have given us, we are giving something back to you. And bread and wine signifies this in a really special way. Bread is not just wheat and it's not just yeast. It's wheat and yeast that have been worked by human hands and turned into bread. Wine is not just accidental grape juice. It's grape juice that has been intentionally worked and turned into wine by human hands. So in bread and wine, what we have is a symbolic way of saying, you have given us wheat and grapes. You've given us the fruit of the earth. We put our work into it and offer it back to you. So we're saying, we're not giving you anything that you didn't already have. What we're doing is giving you what you already had mixed in with some of our work. So that's what bread and wine is when we offer it to, uh, to, to God in the offertory. Um, and while this is going on, we're, we're singing hymns and everything, but we're also, this is a time to prepare our hearts and to, to start thinking in your, in your minds and your hearts, Lord, everything that I have, everything that I am, I want to offer this to you. I want to join myself to the bread and the wine offered on the altar. That's what the offertory is for. Uh, And all the prayers that are prayed during this are we. Everything is we. The priest isn't saying me anything, uh, except in his own preparation. When he's praying stuff out loud, he's saying, we are offering this to you. So then the priest turns to us and says, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Lift up your hearts. This is an instruction. It's something you're actually supposed to do. When the priest says, lift up our hearts, we respond. We lift them up into the Lord. We actually are supposed to do this in this moment. It it takes a a mental and a spiritual effort to say, okay, I'm lifting up my heart. This is how we participate. We lift up our hearts to God. The priest continues to pray, and we get to the sanctus, which means blessed. Um, This is on page 12. We say, holy, 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 Lord, God of hosts. We're echoing the prayer of the angels that Isaiah heard in the temple, that St. John uh, hears in heaven in the book of Revelation. And when we do this, we bow. Because again, the holy, holy, holy is a Trinitarian indication that we're talking about the holiness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we bow through this until we come to... Uh, Blessed is he that cometh. Then we stand again, and at blessed is he to make the sign of the cross. Again, this isn't written here, but this is traditionally what's done by uh, Christians who worship in this tradition. So, bow at the Sanctus, make the cross at blessed is he that cometh. Immediately after the Sanctus is what's called in this book the canon of the Mass. Sometimes it's called the Eucharistic Prayer. In the East, it is called... um, Oh, no, I'm blanking. Oh, boy. The anaphora. There we go. This is the holiest prayer in the entire service. This is the prayer that in its entirety, um, God honors by transforming the bread and wine, which are our offerings, into Christ's self-offering, his body and blood, sacramentally present in the... What was bread and wine now becomes the body and blood of Christ. We don't refer to it as bread and wine after the consecration, after this prayer. We refer to it as the body and blood of Christ. Because of the holiness of this prayer, traditionally what we do is kneel during the entire prayer. Um, Because we're Western Rite Orthodox, and there are so many Orthodox who don't understand the the kneeling or genuflecting, some congregations, including ours for a long time, I've just stood for the duration of this prayer. Standing is fine, but traditionally, and I wouldn't mind seeing us uh, get to this, we kneel during the entire thing. Again, this is not out of penitence, it's out of extreme reverence. Here is the coming of Christ our King throughout this prayer. In the institution narrative, when the priest is repeating uh, the words of St. Paul in describing how Jesus instituted this meal. The words of Jesus himself are spoken. And in the West, um, traditionally, at those words of Jesus, this is my body, we perceive the power to transform the bread into the body and the wine into the blood as coming from the words of Jesus himself. And we also pray that the Holy Spirit comes and does it. But Jesus' words are powerful. And when the priest then elevates the body and elevates the chalice, it's laudable to make the sign of the cross and with St. Thomas to say, my Lord and my God, to acknowledge the sacramental presence of Christ our God in this sacrament. Um, Then, uh, during the rest of the prayers, when the priest, uh, during the rest of the canon, The priest, um, when he pauses uh, in reference to those who need our help, to the departed, he's pausing to name names. It's good to then also think and recall all the people that you want to pray for at that moment. At the end of the canon, uh, the priest finishes, Throughout all ages, world without end, we all respond, Amen. We stand up again, back to our normal posture, so that we can sing, pray, be our Father altogether. Right after this, the agonist day is addressed to Christ, who is present on the altar. We're addressing Him, petitioning Him, O Lamb of God. Why are we addressing Him as the Lamb of God? Because we see Him as the Lamb of God on the altar in the book of Revelation. And here we have Christ on an altar in front of us, so it's laudable to address Him as the Lamb of God. And we're asking Him to have mercy upon us before we receive Him. Um, Also, the prayer of humble access on Page Uh, 16 does the same thing. Then, the priest makes his communion. This is um, a quiet process in a lot of churches. A lot of times there's no music, there's nothing, except the priest quietly praying his own preparation prayers and receiving. Why does the priest have all these uh, special prayers? And it takes so long because... (laughs) He, again, has the special burden of the one who actually handles the body and blood of Christ. And so um, it's it's fitting that he should take some time to really take his communion uh, seriously. And while he's doing that, we can also take that moment to further prepare ourselves. Then, finally, when we come and receive communion, we come to the boundary of heaven and earth. That's what this is right here. Technically, I'm standing in heaven, but not the deepest heaven just as there are progressive, um, uh, you know, spaces of holiness uh, on earth, there are progressive spaces of holiness in heaven. Uh, A lot of the church fathers uh, picture heaven, paradise as a a mountain with a temple on top, and you can uh, either be on the slopes or closer up to the top. Uh, C.S. Lewis picks up on this, talking about those at the the, um, verge of heaven and then journeying up into deeper heaven. St. Paul talks about, visiting the third heaven, um, as opposed to the seventh. Anyway, so this is the boundary, though, okay, between heaven and earth. What's at the boundary? The cross. So in the nave, this uh, this is where we journey through the world. When we come to this boundary where we kneel and receive communion, this is heaven. And up here is the deepest heaven where Christ is present. So we come to the boundary of heaven while still in our flesh on earth, and we receive Christ's very presence into us. We come and we kneel. Um, We don't touch it. The priest places the sacrament directly into our mouths. Um, Again, this is all an acknowledgment of the extreme holiness of the sacrament and of this situation. Uh, It's good to make the sign of the cross on yourself before and after receiving. Then we go back to our um, seats. There's no need to uh, kneel or reverence the tabernacle at this point because Christ Is now outside of the tabernacle Christ is now in you so there's no you know you just go back to your seat and sit stand kneel pray do whatever this is this is a free time to uh, acknowledge that you've just received Christ and to give thanks for that the prayer of Thanksgiving and the final call at the end we all stand for though we're joined back together collectively Praying in our standard posture of prayer. And then comes the dismissal. The um, go in peace, to the Lord be with you, and with thy spirit depart in peace. Thanks be to God. In Latin, this is "ite Misa est," And it's this phrase that gave the name for this service, the Misa, the Mass. Why in the world does Mass take its name from the dismissal? Because the dismissal is not just, all right, we're going to get out of here. The dismissal is a formal um, and solemn commission. To depart in peace means to go into the world carrying the peace of Christ with you. It's, to, it's, it's like the Great Commission. Going to all the world, preaching. This is the church's echoing of Christ's commission to us as his members and his body to go into the world. This is an act of sending out. This isn't a passive uh, we leave now. This is the church sending us. This is a commissioning. That's why it's so important. The church said, okay, after all of this, this great mystery was celebrated, and what do we do with it? Well, we we represent it into the world. All the mystery, all the holiness that we've experienced now would go out to the world and take it with us. That's why it gave that dismissal, that name to the whole service, the mass. So We're not quite done, even though we've been dismissed formally, though. What we do is stick around together to do what is technically a post-Mass devotion. This used to be something done by the priests and the clerics, but it was extended to all the people. We call it the final Gospel. It's almost always taken from uh, the prologue of John's Gospel, unless um, there's one or two Sundays, I think, where this prologue is the Gospel text for the Mass in which case a different gospel is used. Um, Anyway, so what we do is we acknowledge Christ the same way, glory be to the O Christ, make the little crosses on ourselves, the last gospel is chanted, um, at the words, the word became flesh, we again genuflect, kneel down in reverence of the incarnation, um, and then we close with thanks be to God. Then there's announcements, which is not liturgical, it's very practical, and our closing hymn, we also eat the blessed bread. Um, this is, again, like the water, like the incense. This is blessed by the priest. It's set apart and it's special. And it's meant as a mercy um, because we've been fasting all morning, right? So eating some bread is a nice way to just whew, get a little kick of um, uh, insulin and, and sugar back in our, our veins to give us a little strength to make it downstairs for coffee and more mercy. Um, so that's that's it. Then as we leave, though, we do the same things that we did when we come in. We acknowledge and reverence the saints around us. We take a little holy water on our way out to make the sign of the cross. And we keep the nave quiet for prayer, because this, again, is not the world. This isn't a meeting hall. It's not the same thing as all those other places. It's set apart. So we go downstairs for fellowship as opposed to um, up here. So to recap, we enter intentionally, making venerations, taking holy water. We participate by praying, singing, responding. Uh, Our postures are important. The standing is default. Bow in reverence. Ginnyflect or meal in extreme reverence. And then sit for learning. Be physical when you're here as well as spiritual, because those work together. We are embodied creatures. So all of these things aren't just formalities. They're not just ways to fit in. They're ways to participate more deeply. and I thought it was valuable to go over all that today because I don't think we've ever gone through all that um, explicitly in, in quite as much detail. But um, now that we have, if you have any questions or, or thoughts or don't remember something or want clarification, uh, feel free to ask me. But we will continue on with morning prayer together. And at the end, um, if you've got the hymnal, our final Mary and Antiphon should be in there: Mary We thee." So... Let's continue with morning prayer. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.